Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what's your... uh Impression of uh, comedic impressionists, you know the the rich littles of the world who uh, who ply their their comedic trade by impersonating other celebrities. You want me to do an impression of Rich Little doing other comedians? No, because I don't know that how would that be would awful. work. Because it's kind of like I, I imagine there is no Rich Little. Like at the, the behind all these right. these masks, there must be this void. And so if you try to impersonate the void, it's the whole universe implodes on itself. What's my impression of him? Well, I love impressionists, particularly good ones, because I think it's, you know, on one level it's hilarious, right? Because you're recognizing someone in a different context. But also the powers of mimicry uh, are just amazing to me. And some of that rang true for me when we were talking about... um, vaudevillians and people working their dummies in the ventriloquist. I mean, that to me is a real skill. It may not get you a lot of dates, but hey, it's it's good stuff with me. I think it was uh, the movie The Trip with uh, Steve Coogan in it, where you yeah. have the two characters that have this very long and uh, an entertaining bit where they're 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 having this this duel of Michael Caine impersonations. That is one <laughs> hands down. One of the best film moments out there. It is. It's it's pretty great because they're they they each they're taking different Michael Caines from different periods of history, different mm-hmm. points, different films in Michael Caine's uh, uh, lifespan. They are uh, then they also have their own uh, individual uh, takes and preferences when it comes to the Michael Caine impersonation, and uh, and in a way, all of that nuance and all of that variety in the impersonation of a specific thing ties in nicely. In, uh, into what we're about to talk about in this episode. Yeah, because we're going to focus on these comedic impressionists in the wild and why animals might go into this territory. Why would they do it? How they do it? And uh, we're going to cover some extreme mimics that you might not have ever thought of as having this ability. Yeah, we're going to start with birds, uh, which, uh, you know, you're probably aware that birds uh, use a little bit of mimicry in their bird song. But then later on, we're going to get into some uh, other animals uh, that may surprise you. They surprise me. Yeah. And mockingbirds, car alarms, that's going to be probably zero surprise to everybody, right? Yeah. The mockingbird is... uh, is pretty great, really. I mean, we're talking about a very ultimately creative bird. Uh, the, the, the vast majority of songbirds out there, they learn and memorize their songs from a mentor, uh, you know, the, the father bird or another singing uh, male. But the mockingbird takes their sounds from the environment around them. So they're, they may take a little bit of a bird song here. They're listening to this bird and that bird, and they're incorporating it into their own uh, unique song. Or, indeed, they're hearing the sound of uh, frogs or a barking dog. Mm-hmm. And uh, if uh, there happens to be a, um, um, a human settlement nearby, well, then that just opens the door to a whole new world of artificial sounds to add to their uh, unique statement. I think mockingbirds are actually pretty formidable in terms of something to be feared, at least for me, because not only will they mad dog you, you know, and try to swoop in, uh-huh. but they can sit there and, and mimic a car alarm or a cell phone or a dog. Um they're a little insane to me. Yeah, we were reading this uh, article uh, from biologist uh, Daniel Edelstein in an article for Bay Nature. And he said, uh, from one spring to the next, an individual male mockingbird repeats a minimum of 35 to 63% of his previously heard song types, while at the same time adding more songs to his delivery. As a result, his vocal repertoire eventually grows to as many as 200 
at old age, which is up to, to eight years, he says. So one reason for this would be reproductive fitness. Yeah. It comes down, what the what does the, the female mockingbird want? She wants a, a male that has a really awesome song, a really nice, you know, a, a long song, a complex song, and therefore it behooves the uh, the male mockingbird to create such a song using any uh, color, any palette available to him. It's basically the bowerbird scenario, where the bowerbird creates this uh, wonderful love nest out mm-hmm. of objects that it found, finds. The mockingbird creates this wonderful love song out of sounds that it encounters in its environment. That it scavenges from its environment. Right. They're like, if you if you mate with me, I've got like two hundred songs in yeah. my jukebox. That one over there, only fifty. Right. Exactly. So it becomes a more appealing proposition for the female bird if that other bird has the ability to pick up tunes to add to its arsenal of vocal awe. So that's one reason. Now, another reason that animals in nature might use it is deception, of course. Yes, and of course, one of the, the classic examples of this uh, we we see, uh, we've discussed this one before, and this is not really a bird thing, but you see uh, wild cat species in the Amazon. They want to eat a delicious tamarind, those little bitty uh, monkey creatures. Yeah, um, the pied tamarind. Yeah, they're so cute, but so delicious, I understand. Uh, you want you want to eat some of those? What do you do? You start mimicking their sounds. Cats are, of course, great mimics. They manipulate us humans uh, through through uh, their their uh, their mimicking of, uh, of 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 a baby crying, mm-hmm. basically with their with their meowing. And uh, and they're not above uh, pretending to be a tamarind if it means they get to eat a nice tamarind on the other end of that song. Yeah, so when the cat mimics the monkey's call, the tamarins are then compelled to come down from the trees and investigate. What mm-hmm. is this call? Is this my baby? Um, and then, boom, the, the cat pounces. Bottom line, in order to do this, in order to manipulate uh, animals around you with sound, you have to have a certain amount of vocal flexibility. Yeah, we know that humans obviously have it. Bats, dolphins, we've seen this. Uh, songbirds though, are the masters of this vocal flexibility that is listening to and learning vocal cues from your surroundings. And the reason that songbirds are so good at this is that they have something called the syrinx. And this is a sound-producing organ. And it's sort of the equivalent to the human sound box, though instead of being just right above the trachea as ours is, Mm -hmm. it is actually located at the junction of the two bronchi or air tubes leading to the lungs. Yeah, the syrinx uh, features membranes that vibrate, generate sound waves when air from the lungs passes over them. And then you have muscles that control uh, uh, the details of the song production in the bird. And so the more elaborate uh, the, the, the muscles, then uh, the more elaborate the song. Yeah, and it's amazing because think about it. It's sort of like having an accordion tucked in right above your lungs, able to produce these these really nuanced sounds. Yeah, it's easy to. T- this is one of those things that is easy to take for granted as a human because we have uh, this uh, this vocal flexibility. We can create so many so- sounds. Mm-hmm. We can not only sound like each other. We can sound like <laughs> we can sound like uh, like various uh, other uh, creatures in nature or man-made devices. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have all these books. What sound does the truck make? Vroom vroom. What sound does the cat make? Meow meow. We're doing. It's, it's amazing. We can do just about anything. Yeah, Bobby McFerrin, I was thinking about this. Mm-hmm. He's got to have some of the highest vocal flexibility of any human around. Yeah, if he was willing to, he could just he could eat tamarinds all day. Just call him <laughs> in. He would be completely fine out in the wild. He would. All right. Hey, another, another thing here that could be adaptive. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to get into some of the more extreme mimics that we find in nature. 
All right, we're back. You had mentioned BBC's Life of Birds. Yes. Which features a songbird called the Superb Lyrebird, or yes. Lyrebird. Yeah, we get a great scene of Attenborough stalking through the jungle yeah. um, and, uh, and and stalking the lyrebird. Yeah, he is. he's actually in a dense forest in Australia, and um, it's wonderful because he's able to narrate what is going on with this lyrebird, which is really rolling out the big guns in terms of its vocal flexibility. And you see this amazing mimicry going on of not just the, the sounds it hears around, us, or around it in nature, but some of the human-made sounds that it overhears. Yeah, such as a camera shutter. Yeah, a camera shutter that, I mean, perfectly mm-hmm. imitates the camera shutter. Obviously, it heard probably the crew doing that. A chainsaw. Yeah, because he could hear uh, construction going on in the surrounding area as uh, his human uh, habitats uh, uh, moved in on its own. In a car alarm. Yes. And 20 different species of birds. So, I mean, this one is like the Fonzie of birds. Yeah, the lyrebird is uh, either of two species of ground-dwelling Australian bird. And uh, it's interesting that in, in addition to having this immense repertoire of sounds at its disposal. The male lyrebird also has this huge, beautiful fanning tail. Yeah. So they're really the full package. I think so, too. That's why I say Fonzie of birds here. Um, now, that would be somewhat expected, but what I probably would not expect is an Asian elephant able to mimic a human. Yes, this one really surprised me. This is uh, uh, has to do with a 22-year-old Asian elephant uh, that lives in uh, the, the Seoul Korea Zoo. And supposedly, the uh, elephant has learned to reproduce five Korean words. Uh, Anyang, hello. Uh, Anja, sit down. Anya, no. Nuo, lie down. And Duo, good. By placing, uh, and it does this by placing its trunk uh, inside its mouth to modulate sound. Kind of like uh, when you see a trumpet player uh, put mm-hmm. their, their hand in, in, the, in the front of it. Or when you, uh, you see a, a French horn player, where, of course, your, your hand is always... Uh, in the, uh, the the bell of the horn. Yeah, and an international team that's been studying the elephant since uh, 2010 says that this is a wholly novel method of vocal production and that the trainers first noticed that the elephant was imitating them in 2004. And you know what's funny is that for years they probably said, this elephant is imitating me, I swear to you, and people probably like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they spending a little too much time around the elephant, but... I love this idea that this is this, this not only is it is it reproducing the sound uh, and and mimicking humans, but it's doing so in this totally new way. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this in a like a science fiction, but it sounds perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd have a an alien species that communicates by sticking a trunk into its mouth and <laughs> and then mimicking uh, you know human vocalizations. Well, and one of the things that they think is important here, or a key factor, is that it was separated from other elements uh, at age five, very early on, and then it was just surrounded by humans. Ah, uh, so, so, so it inevitably reaches out. Yeah, I mean, that humans, becomes yeah. essentially its clan. And uh, one of the other striking things about this is that it wasn't being trained to do it. This was wholly came out of it just completely unprompted. Yeah. Now, it... Key though is that that whole idea that it was it was around humans, not around other elephants, and we see kind of a similar theme in some of these other animals that we're going to discuss. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next of which is a beluga whale, which I was surprised they had anything to say at all, and that it wasn't <laughs> really dirty because I always find them to be a particularly randy creature when I encounter them at the aquarium. Those are the ones that are always showing off their junk, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is 
they're wonderful. And I love to see them at our aquarium here in Atlanta because they really do glide past the glass and they seem to as though they are making contact with you, eye contact. Um, but yes, sometimes they can expose themselves a bit. So let's go back to 1984. Uh, this is when researchers at the National Marine Mammal Foundation in San Diego began to hear their beluga whale knock saying something that resembled out. And, and, and what was interesting here is that not only is it saying something that resembles out, but it's, it's speaking, quote unquote, uh, at a lower octave than it's actually, than the octave it uses when it's actually, uh, using its vocalizations. Yes. Uh, eventually Sam Ridgeway of the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program in San Diego recorded knock and studied those vocalizations and came to that conclusion that it was modulating its voice. And what you would think is that it was doing that so that it could be understood while it was mimicking. And what's interesting about that, too, is that it would say that when someone was in the tank with him. (laughs) Out, Um, out. Out, get out of here. Um, But Nock made the sounds by inflating air sacs to a higher pressure than he did when he would make his normal whale vocalizations. Yeah, now, the, the interesting thing here, too, is that uh, Nanak later went on and died in 1999, but uh, Nock actually stopped doing this vocalization uh, stunt, stopped saying out in the late 1980s. And the researchers theorize this is because he reached sexual maturity. So there's this, you get this sense that there's this this point for a um, an animal in captivity mm-hmm. where if it's, if it's not, uh, if it's, if it's not surrounded, by uh, other members of his own species mm-hmm. or if it's in close proximity to humans, there is this period of time in which uh, they reach out and try to communicate with the nearest organisms. Yeah, and again, this is a case where it was spontaneous, yeah. so it is noteworthy for that. Yeah, they weren't trying to teach this beluga to, to speak and do tricks. It just emerged, and then as quickly as it had emerged, it went away. Now... One of the more astounding examples to me, I think just because of the clips, you guys have got to check this out, is a harbor seal. Uh, it, it was uh, actually an orphaned harbor seal pup in the Kundi Harbor in Maine, and George and Alice Swalak picked it up in 1971 and uh, took it home with them and tried to raise it. They named it Hoover, but when Hoover got too big, the swallows gave Hoover to the New England Aquarium in Boston. So... George Swallow told the aquarium employees at the time, hey, this seal can talk. And, of course, they said, I'm sure, again, (laughs) you're spending too much time with this animal. But uh, when Hoover reached sexual maturity, he actually began to speak more clearly. Oh, okay. With an interesting trend compared to the beluga. Yes. And here's the part that's just so crazy when you hear the clip, with a Boston accent. (laughs) I pock the cot, Havid Yad. So I don't think I can do a Boston accent. Can you do a Boston accent and run through these uh, different uh, words and phrases that uh, that Hoover could say? I don't know that I'm going to sound like a Southie, but uh, the the seal would say, "Hey, hello there, how are you? Get out of here! Get down! Get down! <laughs> get down! You know, that was the, the, the 70s, right? Oh yeah, get down, get down, yeah." So there are actual clips that the New England Aquarium has, so you guys can check that out. But it is amazing because it's it's so odd. You can't help but anthropomorphize animals who are mimicking mimicking humans in the first place, but then to hear the Boston accent is just another level of amazingness. Indeed. Now for this uh, this next entry, uh, our last entry here, I want you to think back to those uh, those Michael Caine impersonations we were talking about because we're about to talk about goats. And what's what's interesting with goats is that 
they only produce a couple of different calls. They're, they're not a lot of, there's no goat song, you know? Yeah. They're, they're only saying a, a few different things. Uh, so the idea that they're, uh, they're bleeding them out with any kind of variety, with any kind of vocal flexibility is pretty mind blowing. Who would expect this of goats? In the, here, to be clear too, cause I'm sure everybody has seen the, the yelling goat mm-hmm. clips out there, the goats that sound like humans. They are not mimicking humans. Yeah, in a sense. They just happen to sound, uh, you know, arguably like humans. But they do have accents yes. among their own groups, and I thought this was pretty fascinating. Yeah, we were reading about this, uh, the NPR uh, Scott Simon interview with uh, Professor uh, Alan uh, McEllengott uh, of Queen Mary University of London, uh, co-authored a study showing that goats' voices change as they move uh, from different environments. And the idea here is that it's uh, it has to do with group identity. It has mm-hmm. to do with the the goats you uh, you you grew up with and uh, and and took on uh, the, the vocal accents off. Yeah, because they're a really highly social species. Yeah. And so if they get separated during the day, which they sometimes do, they want to be able to find each other, hear each other. So it would make sense that they would take on accents and that those accents could change, too. Yeah. If they change uh, when their environment and they change their the surrounding goats that they're dealing with. And it also kind of gives us a hint about the beginnings of our own vocal flexibility in humans. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're not saying that. In, in you know x number of years or x thousands of years in the future you, the goats will have language but um, all language begins with some degree of vocal flexibility making this sound and making this one this sound means this this sound means that and and uh, and we've also looked at uh, the way language develops in humans i mean a child's babble is you know a baby talk it's uh, it's nonsense but it's mimicry it's uh, mm-hmm. mimicry is the early stages of of acquiring language so, do you want to have a Michael Caine off? Ah, uh, let's. I don't know that my Michael Caine is very good. It's, see, I don't even. Know I like your Michael Caine. It's uh, it's a little earlier. Maybe mine's a little bit later. Oh God, that's awful. Yeah, I think my Michael Caine is maybe an earlier Michael Caine, and it's really not very good. <laughs> I used to be able to do a pretty good Sean Connery, but I had to have a chunk of apple in my mouth. Yeah, and it was a later day Sean Connery. Perhaps after he had dentures, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. have to work on my Michael Caine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, ours, ours nice. are all, no, my our, mine is not good. Yeah. All right, so there you have it. A little insight into the world of animals mimicking other animals, animals mimicking chainsaws, and oh, and in video games, that was one of the things about the lyrebird that I found that there are cases where lyrebird is imitating the gunshots in a video game that it can hear. Um, and then you also have animals that are mimicking us and uh, and maybe even the early stages of the goat language. And then humans mimicking other humans. Yes. So, you want to learn more about this and other topics, uh, you need to head on over to StuffBlowYourMind.com. That is our, our headquarters. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of our podcasts. That's where you'll find news on what we're up to. You'll find our blog posts. You'll find our, our videos. You'll find links to our social media accounts, including Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, we're on uh, YouTube, we're on uh, Google+, and you can always send us a good old-fashioned email as well. How do they do that, Dewey? Uh, they can send it to blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.